0: Well, good morning. Uh, It is a delight to be with you here. Uh, I've heard so much uh, about this congregation, and so it's a delight to actually be able to come and worship with you. Um, Thanks for your hospitality, for me and my family as well. Uh, I've heard so much about the things God's doing in you and through you in this city. And so you can be sure that where the Lord is very active, uh, the evil one is working to extinguish that work. And be of good cheer. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so I really am honored as well to be with you here uh, in this sacred moment. We're going to be in Psalm 88, as David mentioned. And Psalm 88, it's, it's been said uh, what a joy it is that this psalm's in the Bible because it gives us the opportunity to share a whole range of human experiences and human emotions. Uh, but thank goodness that it's the only Psalm 88 in the Bible because it's heavy. We're going to dive into it this morning, but before we do, let's pray together. Gracious Father, your word is inspired by you. You carried it along, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, and it's useful for us, for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, for training us, Lord. Each of us finds our place in one of those settings this morning, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, would your word do its work this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's give ear to God's holy word, Psalm 88, a song, a song of the sons of Korah to the choirmaster, according to the Mehaloth Leonoth, a mascal of Haman, the Ezraite, verse one. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and and you overwhelm me with your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. Well, there was a man who once had everything. He had possessions, he had wisdom, he had a large family with 10 children. He was loved, beloved by his community, and then in one day, all of his possessions were stolen, his servants were murdered, his 10 children were killed because his house collapsed on them, and his wife told him to curse God and die. And you know the story of Job. And stories like that can feel so distant until they resonate in our own lives. What do do we do when life turns on us and it turns upside down, sometimes slowly, sometimes in a moment? We experience the pains of hardship, the depths of suffering. I'm thankful for this psalm because I think what it teaches us this morning is that in the midst of unexplainable hardship, We have a God who wants to give us hope in our dark valleys. And the Psalms do this. They walk us through, as David already mentioned, they walk us through landscapes. Psalm 23 is a great picture of this that there's the landscape of the green pasture. Things are going well, and I'm feasting, and I feel satisfied, and I lie down and I rest. But then there are landscapes like the dark valley where things are hard and harsh, and I'm scared. And I need to know that he walks with me through that. That whatever landscape I might find myself in life, there's actually a psalm for it. And there's an opportunity to share how I'm feeling with the Lord. This psalm, however, doesn't break into an easy Presbyterian three-point outline. 1 through 7, 8 through 12, 13 through 18. It really is convoluted. And Actually, from the Selahs that are thrown in there. Selahs are usually thrown in at, uh, at, at perfect points where they match and they, they sort of have a rhythm and rhyme to them. They're not here. This is a convoluted psalm, and I think the the flow of the psalm actually tells us something about suffering itself, that suffering is not neatly packaged, that it comes to us in all kinds of different shapes and sizes, and it's not an easily tied up bow, and that's what I think is happening here. Four points this morning. The first is the depths of suffering, and we find this in 3 through 5 and then 9 through 17 This psalm's littered with pain. If you look back, verse 3, the psalmist says that his soul is full of trouble. Verse 4, that he's lost his strength. Verse 5, and then he picks up again in 10 and 12, he feels close to death. Verse 9, his eyes are dim with sorrow. He feels abandoned. Verse 15, he feels afflicted, close to death. He's suffering terrors. And worst of all, he feels like it's been like this for a long time. He is in the depths. And we, we don't deal with this very well in our culture. I know I don't deal with pain very well. No one really likes pain. But we, we sort of ascribe to the Stoic philosophy of maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And so we, we want to put walls around our lives. If we can control it, we can, we can minimize pain in our lives. And so we go to things like entertainment. That's fun alcohol, sex, drugs. Maybe it's just hard work. Maybe it's success, approval, whatever it may be for us, but we're putting walls up. We're trying to find life in something that give us pleasure so that we can not ever have pain. And I was telling the first congregation that the first service that in, in college ministry, I've been doing college ministry for 15 or 17 or somewhere, so many years. It's been a long time. And uh, one of the running jokes is uh, among campus ministers, if, if you ask a campus minister, and you can try this, there's some of them here, how was your semester? You'll always get one of three responses. It's good. It's good. God's at work and we're excited. God's moving. It's good. Or good, but hard. Uh, you know, it, it, it's been good, but there's been some hard things going on in our season. Or this is the worst one, hard, but good. And the, the reality is, it, it's so hard for us as Pursuit of Happiness Americans to let hard be hard and not tie it up in a bow and say, yeah, it has been hard. But you know, I mean, it's still, God is good. Things are good. But you just said it was really hard because it is really hard. And this psalm is not tied up in a bow. Haman does not even venture to try to say, and so it's good. No, this is a psalm of lament. We've talked about laments this morning, a psalm of mourning, sorrow, brokenness, sadness. It's harsh, it's a hard scenario. Haman's in the depths, and actually in 10 through 12, he talks about how he feels like he's close to death. And uh, and he pleads with the Lord, you know, if I die, there'll there'll be no more noise. And he's not saying that if I die, there's no heaven, there's no afterlife. He's saying that if you take me from this earth, my noise goes away from this earth. And Haman was a temple singer, and it really mattered. It's like taking one of these beautiful voices away. One of the most painful things about death is the silence that comes from the loved one that you love so dearly. You don't hear their voice anymore. And that's what Haman is saying will happen. He's near death. He's experiencing the shatteredness of life, the depths, and maybe you've been there the beautiful thing about the Psalms is they're really honest with us. They give us permission to be sad, to be angry, to grieve. Maybe you're there, maybe you're resonating, or maybe you're just tired of this first point. Well, the second is the loneliness of suffering. It's way worse. Verses 8 through eight, eight and 18, I think this comes out. Haman, again, was this temple worshiper, a Levitical singer, and he was chosen by God. He, he was spoken of as a wise person back in Chronicles. Um, he would have probably written hymns. He would have had the experience of leading us in worship. And in those days, that would have been an enormously wonderful high calling. He's not just anybody. He, he is really blessed by the Lord in this way, and yet he feels like he's all alone and he feels deserted by all of his companions. Look at verse 8. It says, You have caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. In verse 18, You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Uh, The way the NIV actually translates that last verse is, Darkness is my closest friend. I mean, that's how this psalm ends. There's no bow. Darkness is... My closest friend, everyone's gone, and maybe, maybe you've been there. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you'd prayed your whole life for a wonderful spouse, and then they walked out on you. Maybe you'd prayed for a spouse, and you haven't received one, and you don't feel called to be single. Or maybe you prayed for a child, and the Lord's just not opening the womb. Or maybe you yearned for children, and you lost one. Maybe you've struggled with chronic disease or or sickness. Maybe the cancer's come back. Or maybe it's just, and I don't use the word just lightly, maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's depression. It's heavy. And I don't know what's worse, if it's the pain of the suffering or if it's the fact that in America in particular, they don't know how to treat you when you're suffering and so you feel abandoned. We struggle with this. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but in, in Hebrew culture, if there was a death, uh, every, every funeral was required to have at least a, one flutist and at least one wailing woman. So they would hire out a flutist and hire out a wailing woman. Come here, you're gonna wail the whole time for us. And you can imagine how that would go over in America. But they, the point was that they grieved and they took a year to wear dark clothes and those sorts of things. But, but we don't know how to deal with that. And so we tend to, Walk away from the grieving. And when you're the grieving, that's really painful loneliness, despair, brokenness. But here's the thing you can know you're not alone. Job suffered immensely, Joseph suffered, Moses suffered, David suffered, Jeremiah suffered. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. There's lament songs all through the psalm. Jesus suffered. All of his disciples, by the way, were martyred. They suffered, except for John, who also suffered because he's put in exile. And one of the things that's common, actually, in all those people that I just named is not simply that they suffered, but all of them actually suffered in abandonment. They were abandoned. Their friends abandoned them. And we experience suffering in a deep way, but we also experience it in a lonely way. But thirdly, there's a God of suffering. Praise the Lord, there's a God of suffering. And this comes out in a lot of places here, 6 and 7, 8, 14, 16, and 18. Job's friends, if you think back on Job, they only had one worldview, and it was this. If you are suffering, you're a, you sinned, you caused it. So they believed that sin equals suffering, and blessing equals righteousness, they were, you could say, ancient Near Eastern subscribers to what we see on bookshelves all over the place, your best life now. Right? If, if you're righteous, things are gonna go well for you. If you can name it, you can claim it. If you can believe it, you can receive it. If you're not met, blessed, then you're just a mess. It's your fault, right? And that's what Job walked through. But John, John uh, gives us this story, this great picture where Jesus confronts that at some point. In John 9, Jesus comes upon a blind man, and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they believe the same worldview. This man has a physical malformity. He must be a sinner, or his parents were sinners, or else he wouldn't be deformed. It's a a direct product of sin. And Jesus says, "It, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed upon him. Sometimes sin causes suffering. Maybe we're experiencing that now. Sometimes other people's sin causes suffering. There's immense hurt. There's pain. Sin finds you out and it's never done on an island. It's always done in a way that it hurts the Lord and it hurts you and it hurts all those around you whether you think it does or not, whether you think it's happening by yourself or not. Sin does do that. It does bring pain. And, and there's a need for us to be introspective in that and say, Lord, I'm, I'm going through hardship here. We're going through hardship here. Is it sin-induced? And the response to that is to be honest with the Lord. That's what the word confession means in Scripture. And to repent, to turn from sin and turn to the Lord. And God is gracious and welcoming to restore and bring healing. But, but who reigns over top of that in all sin? Is it just nature brings it about? Or, or Satan is actually in control? Sometimes we turn to things like naturalism, things just happen, or atheism, because it's a quick hook, but it's poisonous in the end. If God is not actually sovereign over all of this stuff, even suffering, then your comfort actually vanishes. It's paper thin, there's nothing there. And your prayers are pointless, and your suffering is now magnified and meaningless. But let's see what Haman says. Look, look at verse six. You have put me in the depths of the pit and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Verse 14, "O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Darkness is my only friend. Job experienced great suffering and he says, Lord, it came from you. And we can read the story and we, can, we don't have a time to talk about primary, secondary causes, how the Lord reigns over evil, those sorts of things. There's plenty of great books for that. That's a sermon series in and of itself. David felt this way. Jesus Suffering clearly came from the Lord. And Haman says, Lord, you're sovereign over this. I can't point it anywhere else. And if that's true, though, we ask the question, why? And again, we could talk about this forever, but let me just give you a few thoughts here from some men that are wiser than me. John Newton has a great quote here, the 18th century slave trader who became a believer and um, wrote psalms like Amazing Grace. And he says this about, and get this, he says this about our need for suffering. When's the last time you thought, I need suffering? In fact, Calvin actually said that one of the paths to sanctification is is bearing your cross, denying yourself. And the third is meditation upon the future life. That we don't meditate upon life, the future life enough because we're not willing to suffer. And that we should be willing to embrace suffering as a gift from the Lord. That's heavy. I'm not sure I've arrived there. But the men of old got it. and, And by the way, they really suffered. Really suffered. Calvin had chronic disabilities, chronic headaches, lost a child, lost his wife, and oh, the congregation dragged him out of his house and almost burned him. That's not good news. They suffered, and here's what they said about it. Here's what Newton says about the need for our suffering. He says this, It's a pity that it should be so. It's a pity that we should need suffering. Experience testifies, though, that a long curse of ease and prosperity without painful changes has an unhappy tendency to make us cold and formal in our secret worship. But troubles rouse our spirits and constrain us to call upon the Lord in good earnest when we feel a need of that help which we can only find in him. Newton's saying, actually, we need suffering because, it, because it, 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 if it weren't for suffering, we would have this long curse of ease and prosperity. What do we live for in America? ease and prosperity. And Newton's saying, actually, if you had what you wanted, ease and prosperity, it would kill you in the end. And God is gracious to break your grip from those things so that you would not become cold in your worship of him and so that you would then actually run to him for your help. Leads us to prayer. Leads us to dependence. C.S. Lewis called it God's megaphone. Pain is God's megaphone. It gets our attention Paul David Tripp says it this way, God intends troubles, troubles, not to be enemies that finish us. We think of them as enemies. Build my wall around my life so there's no trouble that gets in. God intends troubles to be not enemies that finish us, but tools of grace that transform us. I don't know why suffering comes, but I know that he's using it in my life to grow me and to glorify himself. There's so much more that can be said, and again, I don't want this to come across as a theological bow tie, it's, it's tied up, or as any way callous. Suffering is really hard, it comes upon all of us, and there's no way to clean it up easily. But biblically, there's no way to get around the fact that God is sovereign, and that he works in our suffering for his glory and our good. In fact, that's actually our only hope, which is our fourth point, final point: the hope of suffering. And you find this in verses one and two, and then nine and thirteen. There's a depth. There's a loneliness. There's a God involved in our suffering. But where's the hope? Some have said there's no hope in this psalm. Um, that this psalm just ends in darkness, and it does. Um, some have said that Haman has has lost his mind. He's uttering things he shouldn't utter. I think. Um, there's great hope in this Psalm and the Lord speaks to us through it. Verse one is the first place of hope. Oh Lord, my God, myself. Oh Lord, God of my salvation. Let me try it again. Oh Lord, God of my salvation. I cry out day and night before you. Haman's not just crying out to anybody. He's crying out to the Lord. And you've heard this before, I'm sure, where you see those capital letters there. That's the word Yahweh. In the Hebrew. And Yahweh was the special name of God that the Hebrews got to experience as a covenant community. God shows up in Exodus 3 to, to Moses, and Moses says, But God, who shall I tell them has sent me to deliver them out of Egypt? And God says, Tell them, I am as sent you. Yahweh, the verb to be. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. To the, to the covenant people of Israel, He was everything. And this name meant. He is the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. He's promised that he will be our God, we will be our, his people, and he will never leave nor forsake us. You know, the disciples come to Jesus at one point and Jesus has taught some hard teaching and, and a bunch of his disciples leave. He had more than the 12. And Jesus turns to his 12 and says, will you go away as well? And his, his, Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Yahweh You're our covenant maker and covenant keeper. Our only hope is in you. There's hope there. Secondly, there's hope in the fact that Haman's praying. He's not babbling. He's not running inside his mind and and philosophizing. Is that a word? He's not running to his friends, um, although that can be helpful, uh, especially if they're steeped in the scripture. He's certainly not running away from the Lord. He's actually running to Yahweh in scripture. Look back at one and two. I cry out day and night. Let my prayer come before you. Verse nine, every day I call upon you, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Verse 13 says, I cry to you. And and in those three places, it's interesting in the Hebrew Uh, the words are different for call and cry and cry. And it's almost as if the Hebrew poetry is trying to say, in the midst of suffering, there's no one word that can help you walk through it. Just, Just throw up your pain. Just throw it out to the Lord and use whatever words you can use in those moments. Sometimes you actually can't use any words. And Romans says that this Holy Spirit utters on our behalf. What a What an incredible thing that the triune God is at work in our prayer life. The father hears, the son gives us access, the spirit utters on our behalf and fixes our prayers on the way up. But here there's hope because he's praying. We often want to know why in the midst of suffering. God doesn't answer the why for him in his prayer right here. But what I think God is more concerned with in our lives is not the why, but the will you trust me? That's the question he cares more about. I'm not always going to tell you why this is going on, but I want to know, will you trust me when it's really hard? You know, will you believe me when it costs you something? This is where Job got. Job certainly was actually, he was blameless. And at the same time, man, he wrestled, he struggled, and he got to some hard places. But at one point in the middle of Job, he says this, and I think he nails it, Job 13. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's it right there. Lord, you're sovereign. And I got nowhere else to go, not even close, not even anything near as good as you. I'm going to trust in Jesus alone. And then the third place of hope, I think, here is that this, that this psalm's in the Bible. Uh, you know, the psalmist could have censored this and said, That's, that one's pretty dark. We only, do, uh, we only do positive and uplifting in this psalter. But no, he puts this, this, this book's in the Bible, this chapter's in the Bible, and it doesn't shy away from our hurt and our pain, our struggles. The point here is that saints struggle through suffering. Saints struggle through suffering, and God put this in the Bible for you and for me to run to and pray. When's the last time you prayed Psalm 88? Maybe you and I need to sometimes in our lives and not just move past it, but pray his scripture. And when you do, the beautiful thing is you'll understand that part of the reason Haman suffered is because God was going to preserve it for you and me. It wasn't empty. It wasn't pointless. It was preserved so that you and I, in seasons of struggle, could actually go and pray it in our own suffering and know, by the way, that thousands of saints throughout church history have prayed this same psalm, minted in their heart, really struggled, and this is ministered to them just like it can minister to you in the midst of your struggle. Sometimes we can't make sense of suffering. And that's, that's hard for us, especially if we're control freaks like myself. Sometimes it seems like our prayers are just bouncing off the wall. Nobody's listening. There was a time actually in human history when that really seemed like the case. Suffering was pointless and unjust and prayers bounced off the wall. And it was a time when your Lord and Savior hung on a cross. He was beaten and mocked and had a crown of thorns put on his head. He was spit upon. He was naked on a cross for everybody to make fun of, full of the shame of the world. And he prayed a prayer, Psalm 22, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds like the Psalm, doesn't it? it? Wasn't pretty. It wasn't tied up. And God didn't come down and take him off the cross. He didn't actually answer that prayer the way Jesus maybe would have wanted in his flesh in that moment, just like the way he didn't answer it in the garden, take this cup from me. But instead, actually what the father did was forsake his son. He did. And he did it so that he could keep the covenant promise to you and to me that he would never leave you and never forsake you. That is amazing love and grace. And when you know that sort of love and grace you anchor to that even in the midst of your suffering. Even when you say, Lord, this is too harsh, this is a hard providence for me. And yet, Lord, you're the same loving and holy and wise God who would forsake your only son just to have me, what love you have for me, and what purpose you must now have in this storm. What hope we have in the midst of our suffering. Uh, about a year, year and a half ago, our fourth child was born, our only daughter. And when she was 20 weeks in utero, we found out that she had some issues, some, some malformities in her kidney. And none of the doctors could really tell us what it was. Um, and when she was born, it, it seemed worse even than what they thought maybe it was. Uh, we had doctors coming in and saying, we don't, we don't, we don't really know what this is. We haven't seen this before. We had a really great nurse who came in and told us she Googled what it was. Um, if there's any nurses in the room... <laughs> Uh, She almost got hurt from my wife. Um, You don't tell a a recently birthed mother that, uh, that's probably not the correct terminology, that uh, you Googled her daughter's condition. So we end up at the expert, uh, at a specialist in town who's been practicing in this area for a long time. And he can tell we're shaken up, just like any of us would be. Uh, we're concerned about our daughter. We're not sure if this is going to require surgery. We're not sure if she's going to live long. We, we just don't know. And uh, we're, we're distraught. And this guy, I don't think he's a believer, but he looks at us and he says these words, this may be unknown to you, but it's not unknown to me. I got this. And it was it was this moment for us of, that's you, Lord. That's who you are. That whatever I'm going through, it may be unknown to me. I may not understand it. I may have no idea how I'm going to get through this. But it's not unknown to you. you got this. And I can trust you. Will we trust him? Let's pray. Gracious Father, what comforting words we can find from one of the harshest psalms in the scripture most of us actually be afraid to go to, Lord. I know I like to tie things up in a bow. I know I don't like hardship and pain. And I'm anxious even reading a psalm like this, Lord, because I just want to move on and say, hey, everybody, let's be happy again. But Father, we thank you that you made us with a full range of human emotions and you meet us in that range of emotions. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Thank you that Jesus was a God-man, that he felt the pain, that he felt the hurt, and that he, more than anyone in human history, felt the abandonment. And yet he did it for us so that you would never leave us nor forsake us, and you would keep your covenant promise that you would be with us. Lord, may we, may this church actually experience that reality in this season that in the hardship, you are so near, more near than they've ever felt you, God, by your grace. And as Satan would love to tempt them and say, he's not here, he's not near you, he's abandoned you. May they hear a stronger voice in their ear saying, this is the way, walk in it, I'm with you. All this for your glory, in Jesus' holy name, amen.